Hello everybody, today is uh, 20 June 2019 and we are running fourth time an event called State and Future of Energy uh, in Webster University, Geneva. I'm Professor Ruben Injikian, I'm Professor of Energy and Commodities here at WUG and uh, it is my honor and pleasure to host uh, David Five, Chief Economist of Argus Media, with whom we will run this event in 30 minutes time. But before doing that, I would like to register in podcast some views of David on key questions which I am going to ask him. So my first question, uh, David, would be the following. Argus Media is a leading oil and energy price reporting agency. What are the main sources of price data and how you are collecting them? How your price reporting system evolved with the development of ICT technologies, which I believe permit making information nearly instantaneously available for market participants, thus helping them to determine the contract prices. Are they also simultaneously uh, collecting that data from other price reporting agencies or using data of one of them will suffice for them to engage in trade? That is my first question. Ruben, thank you very much uh, for hosting me here and thank you for the question. Um, I'm, I'm going to step back initially and uh, say why, why do people make use of the price reporting agencies and why do commodity traders, buyers and sellers require price benchmarks? And the job of the, the PRAs, as we, as we call ourselves, um, is to shine a light onto physical trades and relatively opaque markets. We can all get the price of Brent crude or of uh, NYMEX WTI from the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times every day. That is a very transparent market. But the actual, actual physical dealings in whether it's physical Brent, physical WTI, uh, a myriad of other crude grades and indeed refined products grades, that requires the PRAs to essentially take a survey of real deals done or bids and offers in the physical market. And that is what we're doing. We're gathering together data uh, every day, every hour of every day of physical deals and bids and offers made in the market. Now, of course, that used to be done uh, with perceived market experts who would sit and scratch their chin and say, well, my view is that prices today roughly did this or that on the basis of half a dozen phone calls to market players. The methodology has evolved a lot since then, as you suggest, and uh, it's now essentially done electronically. And therefore, participants in the physical market, whether they are conducting a deal or making a bid or an offer, uh, will submit that data electronically to the PRAs, who will collate that data, will examine it, look for any outliers or any unusual trades that look suspicious for any reason, there's an ability to exclude anything that looks uh, out of the ordinary or unrepresentative of the trade during the day. And then they will publish each and every day uh, an assessment 
for that particular crude oil or that refined product. And then that price assessment will be used by market players uh, as the benchmark off which they will trade their, make their deals, make their transactions. Very interesting. So, uh, in a way, uh, just to comment your answer to the first question, uh, the market participants are interested themselves to submit information electronically to uh, price reporting agencies so that they will learn also uh, the, uh, the whole picture from others who are also submitting. So it is becoming a, a quite a sophisticated collaboration between PRI and market participants. Yes, yes it is, although I would say that participation is, is not necessarily 100%. There are some companies who prefer not to have their bids and offers scrutinized in a public window such as the Platts window or the Argus uh, open market system uh, and they continue to, to undertake deals uh, outside of that uh, reporting process. Uh, but there are many people who are keen that their, their transactions are recorded uh, and are seen by third parties uh, out there in the market. I see. Uh, the next question is about your role as a chief economist of Argus Media. I believe you are looking at the bigger picture of world economic growth and its implications on energy production and consumption, especially in short term. How do you see the current state of the world economy in that respect? And also a related question, how do you think the escalation of ta import tariff in uh, US-China standoff can impact trade, inflation and growth in those key economies and the world at large and as a result impact on energy consumption? That's a very big question to try and answer in about one or two minutes but um, I think we are at a stage now uh, and really yesterday's statement from the US Federal Reserve I think was an example of that where there are real concerns about the s slowdown in uh, macroeconomic activity uh, taking place worldwide. We've had 10-11 years, unbroken years, of US uh, economic expansion. And historically it has been the case that the cycle uh, for continuous expansion and economic activity tends to have a, a lifetime of, of, let's say, 10 or 12 years. And therefore, it's not surprising that we're seeing the beginnings of a slowdown in world economic growth. The IMF has reduced its expectations of, of economic growth for this year down to 3.3% globally. Uh, many people think that if we achieve 3% growth this year uh, on an annual basis, uh, we will be lucky. Um, so there are definite signs and all the trade data that we see out there month-on-month -month trade, uh, the pace of growth in trade is slowing very dramatically. So the signals are there that we confront a slowdown, and that's important for commodities because the demand for commodities, more than anything else, is driven by the pace of economic activity. So if we have slower economic growth, we're going to have slower growth in both the consumption and the trade of commodities. And I think that is, that is clearly quite likely to happen in 2019 and 2020. Now, when we look at the, the, the trade war between the US and China, uh, we ran, a, uh, uh, if you like, a back-of-the-envelope calculation, a very macro, top-down calculation, 
And we said, okay, well, what if the trade war expands? Maybe the U.S. Uh, imposes tariffs on Mexico and other places. What are some of the scenarios for economic growth? And we said, if, if instead of getting 3.3% GDP growth this year, we got three. And instead of getting 3.6% global growth in 2020, we only got 3%. What would do that do to global oil demand? And our calculations suggested that were that scenario to play out, total oil demand in 2020 could be as much as half a million barrels per day lower than in the IMF's base case. So it's a, a non-negligible impact potentially on global oil demand in overall terms. Now, we're not saying that we think that will be the impact of the trade war on economic growth. We're just saying, what if that happened? What would be the impact on oil? And it's quite substantial. So the related question to that uh, expectation is also that we have um, uh, ongoing, uh, as a result of ongoing shell revolution, USA became the world leader in uh, uh, crude oil production and, uh, and uh, also expanding gas production. So that uh, uh, must have uh, downward pressure on spot prices and future curves. So what is the situation uh, with current oil prices and how OPEC and OPEC Plus can resist through supply management the downward pressures on oil prices uh, due to record oil production and now, as you said, the expectation of slower world economic growth? In other words, are we in contango or backwardation? Well, the, uh, the 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 Brent market is is in backwardation. WTI actually is in contango, so the two are in a different, fundamentally different structure for the nearby months. What I would say is the market is being pulled in two different directions. There are a set of bullish market forces that would tend to suggest higher prompt prices, and there are a couple of uh, more bearish elements that would tend to suggest lower prices. Um, the bearish factors, as you've identified, are the economic slowdown and the rapid pace of U.S. Uh, supply growth. Uh, U.S. crude supply is expected to grow by over 1.5 million barrels per day this year, as it has over the last couple of years. Uh, and if oil demand is only growing by something similar on a global basis, it tells you there's not much room for OPEC to expand its supply. Uh, however, Offsetting that clearly are a couple of other elements that are more supportive of crude. Uh, one of those is geopolitical tensions, and we've seen what's happening in the the the, uh, the Middle Eastern Gulf over recent weeks. Attacks on uh, product tankers, and more recently, just yesterday, the shooting down by the I the Iranian Revolutionary Guard of a U.S. drone. So there are clearly concerns about the stability of oil supplies out of the Gulf. My own view would be that the Iranians are unlikely to try to close uh, the Straits of Hormuz unless the regime itself was under some existential threat, which I don't think is the case at the moment. Nonetheless, the market is very worried about that. And that is supporting prices in the face of economic slowdown uh, and rapidly growing shale. The final factor that I think will be supportive of crude in the second half of 2019 is the impending change in marine fuel sulfur specifications. 
because what that is going to do is it's going to require global refiners to buy more crude, to run more crude, to build inventories of low sulfur components to put into the marine fuel uh, pool. And therefore, you know, that's why I think we have prices that are sort of oscillating around a $60 per barrel level at the moment, because the market can't really decide whether the bearish factors hold sway or the more bullish factors hold sway. And we're going to have to see how that plays out. But the bottom line is, there's not a lot of room for OPEC producers to raise supply uh, over the next, I would say, 18 months to two years. Uh, in that respect, what would you think will be the situation with stocks, strategic and commercial stocks? Are they going to build up because of uh, some relative supply, excess supply, given the situation with demand, or it will just uh, stay where they are? It depends. It depends if we go to that lower oil demand trajectory. I think if OPEC, and let's assume that OPEC would like to continue drawing global inventories a little bit further uh, to get a bit of breathing space, uh, if we're on the base case demand projection for this year of one and a half million barrels per day of growth or more, uh, then inventory will probably keep drawing. Uh, which is what I think OPEC producers and potentially Russia would like to see. If, however, we get a real hit on oil demand from trade war and uh, a sharper than expected slowdown in economic growth, then clearly OPEC producers might have to cut even more. They're, they're currently producing about 30 million barrels per day. And if we had uh, the impact of trade war and slower economic growth, potentially they might have to cut by a further half a million or one million barrels per day in 2020 in order to keep inventories drawing further. Uh, very interesting. And uh, let me ask also that my last question is uh, about the impact of long-term outlooks on uh, current situation. Uh, because we have uh, industries frequently blamed to reflect the interests of producers and being biased towards major role of fossil fuels in world energy balance for coming years and even decades. At the same time, environmental regulations are expected to be much stricter. So we have a situation where the, we see a conflicting expectations. Uh, from one side, people think that due to the increase of population and increase in demand for energy, uh, in absolute terms, oil and coal will still uh, be produced uh, in their more or less current uh, amounts. The other group of people says, no, the renewables will enter into the play much more dramatically and there will be no more possibilities for price spikes for oil, for example, uh, or coal, because uh, the inter-energy competition and more flexible reaction of markets, uh, uh, energy markets, by switching from one source of energy to another source due to the uh, situation. So what do you think, uh, how this long-term 
views, I would say, conflicting views, are they somehow reflected in prices today or these are not? I think we're talking here about the energy transition and that yes. I, 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 I sometimes smile when I hear it called the energy transition because in the 35 years that I've been in the energy business, I've never known it being anything other than transition. Um, that is the nature of, of the business that we're in. Um, what I would say is I I am someone who sees the glass, glass half full for the hydrocarbon sector because I think it will be impossible to meet the material demands of a growing global population to the basics of light and shelter and heat and nourishment without a role for hydrocarbon energies going forward. I think from an environmental standpoint we have to try and lower our carbon footprint. But the idea that we can suddenly make this switch away from hydrocarbons uh, for 85% of our energy needs to zero any time in the next 30, 40 years is frankly fanciful. Uh, hydrocarbons will have a role alongside a growing share for renewables. Uh, remember, most perceptions at present with current technology expect that renewables at best can attain 15 or 20 percent of the energy mix by between 2030 and 2040. So what is what is the rest of the world going to use? Uh, it's going to rely on improved energy efficiency. It's going to continue to require on uh, more sophisticated, more efficient use of oil and gas. Coal is still going to be in the mix albeit in a, a diminishing market share. Um, I think we're going to have to, at some stage, put a price on carbon because that will be a way to try and reflect society's concerns about pollution going forward uh, and to bring forward technologies such as carbon capture and storage, which are vital for us to be able to continue to meet society's rising energy needs. Not so much in Switzerland and the UK and the US, but in the emerging world, where people have a right to improved living standards, a right to higher uh, survival rates, uh, which energy and access to energy brings. So let's be more holistic about this. Let's talk about security of supply. Let's talk about the availability of resource. Let's talk about the affor affordability in emerging countries. Uh, and also the sustainability, the environmental sustainability. So renewables, electric vehicles have a role to play, but so too do hydrocarbons. And perhaps we need to start thinking about spending money on mitigating the impact of global warming, uh, accepting that we're going to have to use hydrocarbons to a certain extent going forward. Um. I do share with you these uh, views and thank you very much for this dense and illuminating analysis during this short period of time. We are now uh, 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 coming to the end of this interview and uh, we'll move on to run our event f during a longer period of time, two hours, where we will uh, find out more uh, the views of our participants and we'll try to answer to this uh, question. So thank you very much for this in excellent interview. I remind that it was the, it was the uh, podcast at Webster University Geneva 
devoted to energy issues and linked to our annual event on the state and future of energy. Thank you very much.